Okay, so we'll continue our study through Judges this morning uh, by picking up where we left off last week, and that was at chapter 2, verse 6. And we'll be looking at 2.6 through 3.6 today. But before we read that passage, I think it would be um, good to kind of reset our hearts when we come to a book that perhaps we're not as familiar with as we are other books of the Bible, um, and to remind ourselves of a few important truths. We can, we can come to a book like Judges, an Old Testament historical book, and wonder, how is this going to be beneficial? How is this going to be practical? How am I going to learn uh, from this? Am I just going to simply gather information, or is this going to have impact upon my life? So for me, when I come to passages like that that I'm not as familiar with and seem more distant to me from uh, maybe like a New Testament epistle where you feel like, okay, I can really like begin applying that immediately, there are a few passages that help me personally when I come to any portion of God's Word And I want to quickly share those with you before we continue looking at uh, Judges. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and then notice this, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, so anytime you come to any portion of God's Word, and if it seems a bit obscure... I want to get my heart back to the reality of this passage and just say, this is profitable. Okay? I need to think through what's being, what's being stated here, and it's profitable in those four ways that are, are mentioned. Okay? A couple other passages here. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so there's another passage you can just kind of lay over any other passage of Scripture that you're reading. And then one more here in 1 Corinthians 10.6, specifically referring to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, So those are just a few passages, there's more than that, but I think those are helpful when we specifically come to Old Testament texts that um, we're trying to think through what is this looking like, uh, what does this mean in this setting, and how does this apply to me. So hopefully those are helpful to you for this study, as well as any study in God's Word. Now, with that, the outline of this portion of Judges I've broken down into four sections, and this whole section that we're going to look at is really a second introduction into the book Of Judges. In other words, it parallels what we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. But it's beyond just a second introduction into book. This this section is really a summary of the whole book of Judges. This section is kind of like an aerial shot of the whole land. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 7, we kind of land that plane and we begin walking through the land that we have just seen. I like the way that Tim Keller puts this. He says, we are introduced in this section to the cycle we will see repeated in Judges over and over. The people rebel, forgetting the Lord and worshiping other gods. God gets angry. As a result, he allows them to be oppressed by their enemies Then in great distress, the people cry out to the God they have rejected. In compassion, he raises up a leader, a judge. The judge rescues the people and leads them into peace and obedience to God. And then the judge dies. And then the cycle repeats. So with that, I want to start by looking at this first point on the outline, which is entitled Rewritten History, by looking at Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. So if I can have somebody read that for us. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. I got it. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. 
Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timonarchias, in the hill, company, uh, hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gashem. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And they arose another generation after that who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Okay, good. Thanks, Jay. Now, what's interesting about this section is it, in nearly all of its words, it repeats what was written in Joshua chapter 24, verses 28 through 31. You can kind of look here at Judges chapter 2, and then look here also at Joshua 24, verses 28 through 31, and think of what Jay just read, and now read, if I can have somebody read through this. Okay, thank you, Margaret. So, why this rewriting of what's already been stated at the end of Joshua? The reason that this piece of history is brought into the present time of the author is it's written for this purpose, to lay stress upon what he's been talking about up to this point in the book of Judges, namely Israel's disobedience to God and their future apostasy, as Will taught about last week. And we see here what the author wants to remind us of with the past generation of Israelites, of what they were like. As he says in verse 7 here in chapter 2, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so he brings in this piece of history to contrast it with what's said about this current generation. Right? So he looks back at the past generation Here's these faithful Israelites, and he brings it in to contrast it with this current generation of Israelites, and that's what we read about in verse 10, where it says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So the past generation's obedience is contrasted with the current generation's disobedience. Now, one might conclude that the reason that the current generation didn't obey the Lord was because the past generation didn't teach them about the Lord and his ways. However, that's not how we should understand the statement in verse 10 about this current generation, which says they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Right? It was not due to ignorance. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because the past generation served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders, which is to say they served the Lord all the days of their lives. They were faithful to God. And part of that faithfulness undoubtedly would have manifested itself in obeying the teaching that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. If I can have somebody read that for us. Thank you. So when it says in verse 10 that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, it doesn't mean that they were ignorant about who the Lord was or what he had done for his people. The word did not know in Hebrew can also be translated acknowledge, which I believe captures the essence of what is being said in this passage. This current generation did not acknowledge the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. In other words, it had no meaning to them. It wasn't that they were ignorant of it. It was just that they weren't paying attention to it. They paid it no regard. They didn't take heed to the Lord and his ways. It didn't have any influence upon them. They knew about Yahweh, but they did not know Yahweh. 
There's a big difference between those things. The same thing, this, this phrase that they didn't know the Lord, the same thing was said about Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, certainly Eli's sons knew about the Lord, since they were priests, but they did not know the Lord. Just as the generation of Israelites knew about the Lord, but they did not know him. Now, I want you to think about that as we, as I've kind of mentioned at the outset here, as we think through that section, what can we learn from that portion of Scripture, of that reality that this past generation paid no regard, or this uh, current generation paid no regard uh, to the Lord or to his ways? How can we learn from that? Let me open that up to you. Dave. Amen. That is a massive implication. Diane Lynn? That we cannot know, I mean, we know the Lord is our Savior, but we cannot draw close to Him on a daily basis and not walk with the Lord and know Him personally in a personal relationship. Yeah, there's a difference between just knowing facts about the Lord and actually knowing the Lord, being in communion with him. Okay. Any other things that you can think of, Dave? Um, there, might, there might be another implication in terms of evangelism, in terms of the generation that knows and a generation that doesn't know, and how quickly yeah. you can lose that knowledge. Absolutely. In terms of knowing the God. Yes. And actually, I've got a question for you. Do you sure. think this generation that's being referred to is the second or third generation outside of the Exodus? Which, which one do you think? That's a good question. As I've taken a look at that, I would probably have to say the third generation out of the Exodus. I'm, I'm but not sure. But yeah. Go back to, the, to, to, jo to um, Joshua 24, yeah. the verses prior to the ones you read. Correct. It's interesting what's going on because yeah. what Joshua is saying is, for me and my house, we will serve so, the Lord. Yep. And then he challenges the people. Yeah. He said they can, and he says, you, you won't. Right. 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 So he knew their hearts. Right. Right. Yeah. Very, very telling. Okay. One of the things, and this kind of goes to what uh, Dave mentioned, is that we are reminded here that the faithfulness of one generation does not automatically lead to the faithfulness of the next generation. In other words, the faith of the parents is not automatically embraced by the children. And we've all heard stories, and some of you could tell your own, of one generation's great faith in the Lord that is then rejected by the next generation. So, you know, for me, as I was thinking about that, it's like, you know, never be complacent in our diligence to train up the generation that is behind us. Don't take it for granted that just because they're, uh, you know, in a place where you think the Lord is honored, that automatically that's going to be transferred. We have to be diligent in teaching the truth to the generation that is behind us. That's the responsibility that we see that the Lord has given to us, and it's the Lord's power to make those seeds that we've planted and, and watered to grow as only He can. And the other thing that, as I you know, thought about that, is those who have children that don't know the Lord, young or old, to, to never, ever, ever stop praying that God would take the seeds that have been sown and cause them to grow, now, no matter how unresponsive or disinterested they may appear, right? Because we've, we've all seen that. You can probably think about your, your own lives. A person can be going totally astray from God one day and then, boom, meets the Lord and the next day their heart is changed and they begin following the Lord, okay? So it shouldn't cause despair either as we look at this to just say, well, I can be as faithful as I can be, but my kids may not follow in my path, that may be a cause for discouragement, but it should never discourage us. God is powerful and mighty, and he uses means to bring his people to himself. So let's just sow in prayer and pray that we'll reap in the salvation of those who are, who are behind us. The other, gener uh, or the other uh, lesson that I think we can be learned, or, or that we can learn from this, is uh, the necessity to keep watch even over our own hearts. Let me say that as a 
Reformed Baptist Church that we believe mightily in the perseverance of the saints, that all who have truly come to know the Lord will be kept by him all the way to glory. But we also believe that God causes us to persevere, not automatically, but by means, namely that of his word of prayer and of fellowship with his people. And, you know, we see an example of this need to watch over our hearts in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Go ahead and turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 3. And if I could have somebody read for us verses 7 through 14. Okay, thank. That's okay, Chris. Thanks. So, I think that's a really helpful passage, right? We've undoubtedly heard of or known people who professed faith in Jesus who have now totally departed from the faith that they once professed for whatever reason. And our Lord alludes to this in what is known as the parable of the sower in Mark 4, uh, looking specifically at verses 3 through 7 and then verses 16 through 19. I think I have that up here. Um, if somebody can go ahead and read that for us, and then whoever's reading that, I'm going to have you read the next slide after this as well. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Okay, and then here's Jesus' interpretation. Go ahead. And these are the ones, and these are the ones sowing on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sowing among thorns. They are the one, those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Okay. So I think that's, that's helpful as we think through what we can learn from that generation of Israelites to keep watch on our own hearts, uh, constantly looking to Jesus and trusting in him at all times and not just kind of taking things for things for granted. I think that, that passage in Hebrews 3 is really helpful, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? So this is the blessing of the means of grace that God has given to be in his word, to be in prayer, to be in fellowship together. Okay, so on your outlines, uh, we see the reason that the history was brought forth into the present. And then the next point there is Israel's sin and God's anger, which frames out the passage from verses 11 through 15. So back in Judges chapter 2. If I can have somebody read verses 11 through 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, by walking out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods, the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against 
to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, for they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Okay. Now, in order for us to understand the sin of Israel here, we want to think through what it was about Baal worship from the leftover inhabitants that Israel failed to drive out that would have been appealing, that would have caused them to abandon Yahweh and worship false gods. Um, Dale Davis, in his, in his commentary on Judges, I appreciate what he had to say here. He says, to the Canaanites, Baal was the god of storm and fertility, and that was really what mattered to them. In order to live, they needed crops and livestock and the succession of offspring. And so Baal, they believed, had a female partner, Ashtoreth. In Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and Ashtoreth. So the revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between the two. But here's where this becomes a little more involved. Rather than just kind of sitting back and waiting for these false gods to engage in this sexual activity, the Canaanites believed these false gods needed to be coerced. And so they set up Baal shrines where a Canaanite man would go in and have intercourse with the temple prostitute. And so the man would play the role of Baal and the holy prostitute would play the role of Ashtoreth. And through this act, they were seeking to show their allegiance and dependence upon these false gods and also to encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to follow their lead. And so then the outcome of this would hopefully lead to Baal and Ashtoreth engaging in sexual activity, which would then bring about rain and offspring of livestock and children. Okay, So that, that was the theology of the Canaanites. Now, if we think about that just for a moment, we can probably see how the Israelites might have been tempted to join in on this godless worship. And here's the interesting thing here. The Canaanites were not looking for the Israelites to completely abandon their worship of Yahweh, but to add to their worship of Yahweh the worship of Baal. And indeed, they did. And they mixed in with this wickedness was also the abomination of sacrificing children to these false gods to further coerce and appease them. And we really get a good picture of how God felt about this as it says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Okay? And there's a good recap of this in Psalm 106 verses 34 through 40. I have this broken up into a couple slides, but if I could have somebody read that for us, Psalm 106, verses 34 through 40. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them, and they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and played the whore in their deeds. <clears throat> then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. Okay, so that's, that's a really good recap of what we see taking place throughout the book of Judges. And I think there's also, you know, helpful lessons that we can learn from this section of Judges. One is that God's promises are all true. Not only the glorious promises that he has given to us about what Christ has done on our behalf and the future inheritance that we have with him, which are absolutely glorious promises, but also the promises of warning and judgment upon rebellion. Notice in verse 15 here where it says, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. Okay, so his promises of judgment are as real as his promises of blessing, and Israel disregarded that. 
And I think this is really helpful for us as we think about how can we glean from that, about not compartmentalizing God, just taking attributes about him that we like and disregarding these other attributes that we don't. I think that's a word that the evangelical church needs to hear in our day, that there are many who believe that God is not concerned with how we live, but simply what we profess. In other words, as long as we confess that Jesus is Lord, how we live is of secondary importance. And scripture deals with this in numerous places, but one that I'll mention is in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul addresses this persistent sinful behavior amongst the Corinthians, and he warns them about this in this way, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, where he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Right. So there's deception going on here in the minds of the Corinthians. Okay. And Paul says, Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So the promises of salvation and judgment are both real, both real and will come to pass. And then another lesson that I think that we can learn from this section is the need to be separate from this world. And this was one of the massive failings of the Israelites. Rather than driving out the Canaanites, they failed to obey the Lord completely. And listen, that failure eventually led to idolatry. It was really idolatry at the start because they weren't worshiping God uh, as they were commanded to do. So Israel failed to properly combat a godless culture. And listen, it cost them dearly. Now, while we're not called to deal with the culture around us in the same way that the Israelites were called to do so, that principle still remains for us, that of being a distinct people in the culture in which we live and combating it through the proclamation of the gospel and godly lives that are in step with the gospel. Uh, we see Paul again addressing this issue with the Corinthians the Corinthians, this time in a second letter to them. If I can have somebody read this, this will be 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, broken up into two slides. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, or what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does the what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and you walk and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen. Okay. So I think that's really helpful for us as we think about this need to be distinct. As it said, to be in the world, but not of the world. And we see that in 1 John chapter 2 as well. Do not love the world. We went through that lesson uh, in the doctrine of sin uh, about a month ago or so. But that aspect of not, not loving the world, not allowing the influence of the world to come upon us. And that's, that's a battle for every one of us all the time, right? That, to find that balance of how to be in this world, but not of this world, right? So, just soaking our minds in Scripture, hearing the promises of God and how to live in a manner that is, that is pleasing to Him. And also just learning from this account here and seeing the danger of compromise, right? Just that little step towards compromise can blow up into this massive act of 
of disobedience toward, toward the Lord. So we just want to guard our hearts, keep our minds and our hearts centered on Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Okay, let's move on now to the, uh, to the third point on our outline. And that is God's mercy and Israel's sin. God's mercy and Israel's sin. And I want to read verses 16 through 23. 16 through 23. If somebody can read that for us. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord has moved to for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua had left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Okay. Now, as we, as we read through this section, what should absolutely floor us as we read this is the unspeakable mercy of God. Right? Listen, the people were so worthy of judgment for their rebellion against the Lord. God would have been perfectly just to cast them off forever. But the Lord had pity on him. And so he raised up judges to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And notice this. He didn't just raise up one judge to give them an opportunity to turn back to him. He raised up judges. Right? So this was a cycle of rebellion and a cycle of mercy from the Lord. So their, their disobedience was met time and time again by his mercies. Right? And that should just absolutely force. What a, what a compassionate God. And I don't think it takes much for us to think through, how does this apply to me? <laughs> right? You think about your own heart on a daily basis and how we just go astray in our thinking in our speech, right? And, and the mercies of God are new to us every morning. Great is his, his faithfulness. Audrey. Last night, I had been reading scripture, and it occurred to me, you know, God gave his nature to those who truly love him. Yeah. Amen. And we think about children. Yeah. At least I was thinking about children mm -hmm. and how... They might go off and do things we don't like. Right. But our love for them yeah. never ceases. That's right. Amen. And I think that's because we have God's nature. Right. Right. Amen. Yep. It's very, very good. One of the great things about this is when you get a little bit further in the history of Israel, you have the recounting of this aspect of Israel's rebellion against God and God's mercy uh, recounted by the Levites in Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 23 through 31. Let's go ahead and read that. Man, this was such a sweet passage as I read through this and just thought about how merciful the Lord is. So let's read Nehemiah. Chapter 9 verses 23 through 31. And I, I, it really starts back at the middle of verse 5, but I'm just going to kind of pick it up here in verse 23 because that's more of kind of where we're at historically as he's hitting on this. So if somebody can pick up at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 23. 
and read through verse 31. Really, really helpful summary as you just kind of see that cycle of Israel's rebellion and God's mercies toward them as they, as they cry out to him. Now again, as we, as we think about that section in Judges chapter 2, how can we learn from that? Okay? And I want you to think about it from the perspective of how should the mercy of God affect us? Just throw that out to you guys to interact with. Amen. Right, absolutely. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, right? Okay, good. What else, Chris? Absolutely. Right, right, absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Okay. Yeah, I think I think there's a, a couple of things that as I thought through that, um, kind of goes into both what Corrine and, and Chris shared. Um, the, the first one is thinking about how, how I should not apply this to my life, right? And that is to presume upon the mercies of God, right? To look at this section and be like, oh, okay, I can just sin and God will have mercy and I can sin and God will have mercy and I can sin and God will have mercy, right? So we, we shouldn't look at that example and kind of picking up on Paul's train of thought here in Romans 5 that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Therefore, let's sin and watch the matchless mercy of God show up, right? So we shouldn't say, you know, even when I do sin, it's not that big of a deal because God's mercy is going to cover it. That's how we don't want to do that. But rather, how we should respond to this is by gratitude for the kindness of the Lord and seeking to, as Corrine mentioned, allow that kindness to lead us to repentance, to come face to face with the reality of our sin and let it drive our hearts back to what Christ has done for us. I really like the way Paul states this, right, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, right? So there's the foundation that Paul's appealing to them from, by the mercies of God. How should that affect you? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? So that's, that's the right application of the mercy of God as we think about it. It's, man, think about how kind the Lord has been to me. This is a God I want to be near and close to and live for and honor with, with how I live. And it constantly just drives us back to the gospel because, I, like I said, we're, we're in need of the mercy of God every second of every day, and we will be until, until glory, right? Because we're still battling and fighting against these sins. And then we'll see that grace and that mercy open up in a, in a way that we have not yet. So I think, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because yeah. these words mean nothing to people outside God's body. That's right, yeah. But the right. people in the church, yeah. I mean, I was with friends last night. Everyone professes to be Christians. They are in church every week. But we were talking about some spiritual things. And it made me truly wonder if a couple of them really do know. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good, you're right, that's a good basis from which to pray for one another is, Lord, help us to really understand the mercies of God and to live in light of the mercies that we have been, that we have been given. That's good. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at this last section here with the little bit of time that we have remaining. Back in Judges chapter 2, you'll notice at the last part of chapter 2 here in Judges that we see what Will mentioned last week when he was dealing with the beginning of this chapter, that God did not drive out the inhabitants of the land, but left them for a specific purpose. And he left them to test Israel to see if they would be faithful to him. And that leads into our last point on our outline, tests and chastisement. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If I can have somebody read that for us. Judges 3, verses 1 Okay, thanks, Ramon. So in this last section, I really want to hone in on verse 4, since that is really the main verse in this section. Uh, we see here, as I mentioned, that the nations were left in the land for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. And then the last part of verse 4, which says this, which God commanded their fathers by the hand of of Moses. So let's look back at a couple of passages from the hand of Moses that deal well with this section. Exodus 34, verses 11 through 15. I'll just go ahead and, uh, and read this. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Now that should echo what we've read up to this point in Judges. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice. All right, so there's just 
like this prophetic utterance that lands right in the middle of Judges, and we see the outplay of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, as well, verses 1 and 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote, sorry for the lack of space there, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Okay, so again, there you have the utterances that the Lord had given, and Will kind of picked up on this last week. So God foretold through Moses what Israel was to do once they entered into the land. And as we've seen, Israel did not obey this command. And we see what one consequence was of not obeying this command in verse 6 of chapter 3. Look at Judges 3, verse 6 again, that Ramon read for us. Notice verse 6, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. It's a really helpful passage against missionary dating. (laughs) Okay? So, back, now I, I cut off a couple of passages back in that Exodus 34 uh, passage and in this Deuteronomy passage. I want to go back to the ending of it. So Exodus 34, notice this. I, I read verse 15, but I'll read it again just to keep it in context. But I want you to see the consequence here. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And notice verse 16. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after other gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Right? So there's the declaration the Lord telling you. If you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what you see taking place here. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Right? So there the Lord just lays it out. Here's what's going to happen if you don't obey this. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 6 in Judges. I was thinking, uh, talking to Sabrina a couple days ago, and just talking about as I'm going through this two-year Bible reading plan and reading about Abraham and his desire for his son Isaac. And if you remember what he said, don't let him marry a Canaanite, <laughs> right? And this, this was just ringing back into my mind as I, as I read through that. So we, we see here in this outline that we'll see really, again, just a synopsis of the whole book of Judges, what happens to Israel as they turn away from God and God's mercy and continuously raising up judges for them. Will mentioned something that's very important to keep in mind for us, and we hold fast to this, and we love this, that as we see Israel's disobedience and we see this cycle of judges that is unable to permanently deliver Israel out of the hands of their enemies, God finally raises up one leader, one judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to permanently deliver us out of the hands of our enemies and to take our hearts of stone and to give us hearts of flesh that long to walk in obedience to the commands of God. And how thankful we are for that. We have this high priest who constantly intercedes for us, who carries us, and he will bring us all the way home. So there's much that we can learn from Israel's disobedience to God and much we can learn about the mercy of God. And again, we thank God for our Lord Jesus Christ, that through Jesus, God displayed both his justice and his mercy. And we can rejoice for his kindness to us and pray that God would help us to live in light of the great mercy that we have received. Okay, so we're going to stop there for today. Lord willing, we'll pick up there next week by looking at our first judge, Othniel. And uh, Will will launch us into that, into that section. So let me go ahead and close us out in prayer this morning. Father, we want to thank you again 
as we, as we read through this section of your word, as we're reminded that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, Lord, we thank you that we can learn from this, that we learn about ourselves, that we learn about your character. Father, we see so much of our own hearts uh, in this rebellion, how easily we're led astray uh, to find pleasure in other things besides yourself. So how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ, our judge, our leader who was raised up for us. And Father, how thankful we are that the punishment that we so richly deserved was all laid upon him, that he bore the full weight of the wrath that we deserved and that we have been given his perfect righteousness, that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in that, Father, we have new natures, natures that long to honor you and bring you glory. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a people diligent to take advantage of the means of grace that you have given, of spending time in your word, spending time in prayer, both individually and corporately, and fellowshipping with one another and building one another up in the faith as we look forward to that great day of our Lord's return to get his people and how thankful we are that we have been counted in that number. Prepare our hearts now, we pray, as we go in to worship with all the other saints, Lord. May your name be glorified, Father. That's what we long for. And may our hearts be satisfied in you. Guard us from chasing after the vain things of this world, all these opportunities for idolatry that are around us. Lord, please help us for your glory and for our good. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.